Ooh, welcome everybody. It's another episode of the Watch If You Dare podcast. Joining me like always is Aaron Mansfield. I am Derek Smith. I am the coward of the group. Aaron, how are you, my brave boy co-host? I'm feeling kind of spooked today as well. Uh, Nah, for real, it's been a pretty good day. We had a good holiday break but we are back. Yeah, so kind of peek behind the curtain. By the time you hear this, this will be probably several weeks from now, but uh, we took a break over the holidays. We had a, uh, the next few episodes that, are, that came out before this one, they were all pre-recorded, and so they'll be dropping. And then now that the holidays are over, we're going to try and get a little more back on track with recording. Maybe we can start uh, dropping episodes right after we record them as opposed to them being like weeks or months old. Yeah, so we are back. It's been several weeks since we last recorded an episode, actually, together. Yep. So this might be a little rusty, but I think we'll be totally fine. This week, we are going to be discussing David Cronenberg's Scanners. So not completely horror, necessarily, but there's lots of horrific things in it. Um, I consider it to be a horror movie. And uh, we're going to kind of dig in and talk about why we think this is a good candidate for Watch If You Dare in a minute. Till then, is there anything that you want to talk about that you have read, watched, played, etc.? So I'm going to actually get into Red Dead Redemption 2 because I've been playing that on pretty much most of my free time for the last several weeks. So if you want to avoid any kind of minor spoilers, like in terms of the game world or like random encounters that can happen while you're in the game world, you may want to skip ahead like 5-10 minutes starting now. So yeah, in Red Dead Redemption 2, part of the game world is heavily based off of Louisiana and like the Swamplands and even one of the major cities in the game is pretty much New Orleans. And in the Swamplands especially, you can have a lot of creepy encounters. Like there are a lot of, like in all the Rockstar games like Grand Theft Auto and the first Red Dead Redemption, they always put like creepy Easter eggs for fans to find that aren't necessarily have anything to do with like the main storyline or anything like that um so it's no surprise that they make a return in a big way here but most of the scary encounters i've i've had are have always been in like the swamplands during nighttime and they are generally creepy i would (laughs) i would not mind rockstar making a horror game one of these days they did do the undead nightmare dlc for the first red dead so maybe they'll do some other kind of horror related dlc for this one which i would not be opposed to for instance i was going through the swamp the other night and i heard this woman voice and whenever you hear a voice of a random encounter or a stranger it'll mark it on the map like right near you so you can go explore it and as I got closer it sounded like she was crying and she was like by a marshland or a river and as I got closer she's just like I'm I miss you so much I miss you so much we'll be together soon and when I rolled up to it it was a rougarou (laughs) there was no one there and then I, I looked online later on and it's just like oh yeah you can encounter straight up encounter a ghost and actually like eventually see it if you try and look for it enough and I was like that's pretty creepy but then another one was like a woman was crying on the side of the road and I could actually see her so I walked up to her and like asked her like do you need any help because I'm kind of playing a good guy kind of and she immediately stabs me screams and then like 
these guys dressed in like swamp camo and mud and everything just come out of the woods and attack me and they're called like the night people and they're like this weird fucked up group that live in the swamps and only come out during the nighttime i've had an encounter literally with a vampire in saint uh, i mean in the new orleans city just random weird shit like that there's generally some unsettling things in the world and 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 the graphics are so well done the world is so detailed and so alive that even just kind of riding around at nighttime there's a general uneasy feeling about the game so so i'm assuming like all the rockstar games the city is not actually called new orleans it's probably called like new like orleania or something like that right so the city is actually called saint denise in this one and the state of louisiana is called the is called lemoyne there's not really any states in the game but it's kind of implied that they are states like that you're crossing over and until so like the whole swamp area is called lemoyne and the main the main city is saint denise and it is direct model after new orleans is it like tony hawk pro skater 2 where you are in new orleans but essentially the quarter and the swamp are connected by like they're like one half pipe away (laughs) kind of yeah (laughs) yeah because like it it, it's early in the game like when you first arrive to that area it's like implied that like the city is growing and this is the civilization kind of creeping up and taking over the south and the west and everything so gotcha the city's still under construction but a lot of it pretty much all of the uptown and the french quarter areas are all there yeah gotcha so yeah uh have you been into anything spooky lately i've been catching up on movies here and there honestly i've been re-watching some older stuff just from a comfort food standpoint the last few weeks have been super busy for me with work and so everything's kind of calming down and going back to normal now but that just means I kind of want to chill and take it easy and watch stuff that I kind of know already that I can put on the background. As far as new stuff is concerned I watched the Maniac Cop movies. Uh, I've seen the first one a bunch of times but I've never actually seen two or three. I watched those on Amazon Prime and they're they're fun enough there's some fun, interesting stunt work in those, and it keeps just cracking me up that, like, the bad guy is Robert Zadar, because between him already being, like, a huge imposing guy, and then all the makeup, it just looks super goofy with him walking around with corpse makeup on. So those movies are fun enough. I also am, like, patiently waiting for the Suspiria remake to be available um, that comes out in just a few days, and one of our mutual friends saw it because they live in New York, so she has access to more than we do down here, and uh, she was kind of mixed on it, but she had never seen the original. You know, I think everybody has been kind of mixed on it, so I'm I'm kind of itching to actually get my hands on a copy and watch it. I've already got it pre-ordered since it's relatively cheap. Beyond that, I have been catching up on a lot of the Mike Mignola-verse side story stuff to Hellboy. I've read Koshe, Koshche, Koshke, I don't know how to pronounce him. Um, Koshke the Deathless. He's a character that was introduced several years back, and this is just kind of his entire backstory of all of the Russian folklore involved with him, and that storyline was fun. I've also been catching up on the Hellboy and the BPRD series, which started a while back that's kind of filling in all the gaps from the 50s through, you know, to the 90s when the main storyline picks up. So that's a story, that's a title that they could continue on for years if they wanted to, just kind of filling in all those little side stories. And um, it's fun. It's it's really fun depending on who the artist is as well. Um, the artwork in that series has been very good so far from what I've read. 
great and it's been enjoyable. Um, but it does just kind of make me, it makes me itch for more Hellboy stuff. Right. I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of in the camp where I'm not looking forward to this movie a whole lot, especially not after seeing this first trailer. <laughs> I was just about to ask you that. Also, too, to my limited knowledge of the Hellboy comics, because I've read a little bit of Hellboy, not nearly as much as you have. One of the things I do appreciate about it is that they, they do take the time to like almost every side character either gets their own miniseries or straight up gets their own series at one point. But then also, too, is that Hellboy definitely has an end to his story, uh, you could say. But there's a lot of ongoings and the ongoings still stay true to like his history as a character because you can fill in so many blanks with the years in between. And I, I think that's awesome. Yeah, that's what Hellboy and the BPRD is doing. Um, it kind of jumps all the way back to the 50s and they're essentially doing like a trade paperbacks worth for each year and so now they're to like 1956 or 57 or something like that um but it's fun because it references stuff that's been brought up in the comics previously because even in the main bprd storyline there's lots of flashbacks and some of the other side story stuff ties into things that are going on in that series but yeah that's that's one of the biggest things that i enjoyed last year I read through the entirety, just everything. I've read the Hellboy main stories many times. Um, and I'd kind of read BPRD here and there to a point, but going through and reading every last stitch of it that I possibly can in like the true reading order, super, super, super satisfying and worth the time. Yeah, I bet so. The amount of crossover and overlap and seeing how everything ties together and there's very few like loose dangling ends, just absolutely worth going through the entire thing. It was very fulfilling. It ends very well for the main Hellboy storyline. And to kind of see where things go from there has been very interesting, but it's been very enjoyable. And yeah, I mean, unfortunately, I'm not looking forward to the movie that much now that I've seen this first trailer. I'm still going to see it. I'm still going to be kind of open-minded about it. But from the beginning, I've never really liked the makeup look. I think Neil Marshall is an okay director. I really, really love The Descent. That's easily one of the best horror movies from the 2000s. We are for sure going to do The Descent on here relatively soon. But I just don't think he's that great of a director, especially not to pull off something this big. So I don't know how I feel about it. That and just a lot of the like story things that they've gotten massively wrong. Um, a lot of the initial fan complaints early in the process of making the movie was that they cast a character who is definitely Japanese American. Like that is his story character background it's important to like who that character is they cast the white guy who was like the bad guy in deadpool ed screen <laughs> right so a lot of fans are just like the fuck like nah this isn't what are you doing so once the actor like kind of found out he was like you know what okay cool yeah i'll step out i didn't realize that i just auditioned for this movie whatever so they you know the studio at least listened and they cast daniel day kim from lost cool all right good casting First teaser comes out, and he's British. <laughs> so it's like, all right, you fixed one thing, and then you messed up another. And it's just very important, like, for who that character is, that they get those things right, or his storyline just doesn't quite work. So I don't know. I'm curious about it, but I think that they're either going to try to stuff way too much in, because you can also see flashes of, like, Baba Yaga in the trailer, and that's, like, a whole other giant chunk of storyline. I don't, I don't think, what's her name, multi-pass, Jovovich, Mila Jovovich. Oh, okay, I have yeah. never thought she's a great actress at all. Like, there's a reason why she's in the Resident Evil movies where she only has, like, a dozen lines in every movie. You know, I just don't think she's that great of an actress. So, 
casting her as the main villainess of this movie, I don't know. Like, you could have gotten anybody else, I think. And it could have been probably better. So yeah. I'm, I'm curious to see kind of what they end up with. See, I, I actually did kind of like that initial image that dropped of David Harbour in the Hellboy makeup. I thought that looked actually pretty decent. But like you, I just saw the trailer and I was just like, eh. Yeah. I was completely unimpressed by it. Not, I wasn't disappointed, but at the same time, I wasn't really like, oh, this looks like a must-see. So something that you had mentioned with the Hellboy graphic novels, kind of each one is like covers a year of that in-between. Between. It kind of reminded me of, I was listening a while back to Grant Morrison. He was on a podcast. I can't remember which one. He was talking about his own theory of like Batman. It's not necessarily a theory I completely agree with, but it is one that I really think is interesting. And I, it's kind of a thought that I've had as well in the past. But he thinks that all of Batman's history from like the 40s on is all canon and it all did happen. And he said his thought process is that every decade is one year of Batman's career as Batman. So like the 40s, that's like his first year as Batman, the 50s, 60s. He says like all the goofy shit is real. And it's just like him and his own villains evolved. And it's all just like kind of a performance that they're all a part of. And they all kind of unspoken understand that this is kind of like an act that they're putting on. And so they'll go through their phase of happy-go-lucky goofiness. Then they'll go through their dark phase and so on and so forth. So when you mentioned that about the Hellboy chapters, that kind of reminded me of Graham Morrison's thought process on, on Batman. I'll give him that up to a point. But when you have stories like The Long Halloween, which explicitly takes place over a calendar year right Meh. yeah you know, whatever. yeah i mean canon like when it comes to comic books especially with dc and marvel canon will just make your head spin anyway so <laughs> yeah and i'm I, as i'm getting older i'm just appreciating more and more comics that have a definitive ending we've talked about harrow county on here before i'm so glad that that just ended and it's done and that's the whole story you know and if, if cullen bunn wants to go back to that and maybe do a whole separate story that's related in the same universe okay but i love the fact that like that story has an end yeah and that's kind of the same thing with like why i don't mind there always being star wars content because it seems like all the content when it's focused on a character a group of characters it has a definitive ending but anything that happens afterwards or if they're prequels it's in the same universe um but it's not necessarily the same cast and it's not the same people that's happening to i like when shared universes do that yeah so that kind of gets me into the next thing that i'll mention I have kind of taken a dive into Hammer Horror, which I've never been super, super into just because I've not had a lot of exposure to it. But one of the guys that works with me is like big into Christopher Lee Dracula, like really digs Christopher Lee as Dracula. And so I've been kind of going back through and watching all those. Scream Factory just put out a really nice Blu-ray of Dracula Prince of Darkness, which is technically the second movie in that series. Really, really fun. Really solid. I really dig Christopher Lee's Dracula, and I think he also might be my favorite Dracula. But those movies are kind of that way, where there's, you know, six, seven movies canonically, like in that main Hammer run, but every single one is just, we killed Dracula, yes, darkness is vanquished, and then the movie next picks up with kind of an exposition, James Bond, Fast and Furious kind of scene of, like, somebody resurrecting Dracula. Dracula again and like all right we gotta do this shit again here we go i was watching dracula 1972 ad and that one literally opens with like a horse and cart chase the guy kills dracula um i say the guy it's fucking it's van helsing played by peter cushing 
and Dracula dies. And then right at the end, you just see like a guy like kind of hide his ashes. And then it cuts to the credits and it's like, now it's 1972 and we're waking him back up. All right, got to do this Dracula again. And I love that they're just like, yeah, uh... The great-grandson of Van Helsing is named, like, John Van Helsing. He's here this time, and it's still Peter Cushing. It's still just, like, old Peter Cushing. They just put him in, like, modern clothes. He's like, yes, I'm the grandson. (laughs) But, yeah, every single one of those kind of, like, ends, and then the next one immediately picks up with undoing that ending. So it's very comic booky in that way that it just kind of keeps going. They keep finding new convoluted ways to bring him back. So that's been kind of fun going back through those and watching them. They have a very interesting kind of tone and look and feel to them that I'm I'm really enjoying a lot, even though the movies are pretty ridiculous and overwrought. So I think that's kind of it. Um, I have been involved with more horror-related stuff than just that, but we've taken a pretty large break. So honestly, you know, I could go on and on about the holiday horror that I watched and just kind of stuff like that. So yeah, let's get to f- Fucking talking about scanners, finally. (laughs) I would like to scan all of you in this room, one at a time. There are four billion people on Earth. 237 are scanners. They'll control your mind, conquer your will, manipulate your body like a toy. Self-destruct, five seconds. The pain begins. Ah! In your flesh. In your brain. Four seconds. You feel its power. Three seconds. The pressure. The pounding. The terror. Two seconds. You can't breathe. It chokes you. It destroys you. (laughs) One second. You begin to self-destruct. Experience the terrifying power of scanners. You pray it will end, and it will. Scanners. Their thoughts can kill. Let's let's talk about this movie because I don't know about you, but I have definitely watched this movie a couple of times now um, since we've been talking about doing this for weeks and just we've been putting it off. So I am ready to go. So Scanners, before we get into spoilers, is a 1981 and it's classified as science fiction horror film. It was both written and directed by David Cronenberg. It stars Stephen Lack, Jennifer O'Neill fucking michael ironside which i didn't know was in this movie until i watched it and it basically is kind of to kind of dumb down the premise of it it's almost it it reminded me of like a sci-fi horror take on like the x-men if all the uh, the mutant powers were all telekinetic and not different powers um because it follows in this fictional world there are people called scanners who have the ability of using telekinesis and telepathy more more than just that and i'll we'll talk about it when we get there but yeah there's like a weird range of powers that just kind of keep coming up more and more but they're all mind-based they're all yeah yeah they're all telekinetic telepathy just varying different powers yeah all the tellers this movie in particular kind of explores how like goes into corporate espionage between different different corporations and different businesses that actually employ are looking to like employ their own scanners for various fucked up purposes you had mentioned earlier that you do think this is classified as a horror film it's funny because we had a small discussion when we went over lost highway that you had mentioned it's horror adjacent and i thought it was more just a straight up horror film it's kind of vice versa for uh, i think with with scanners i think scanners is more horror adjacent than lost highway was because i was not too disturbed by this movie it didn't scare me too badly it didn't get under my skin 
So yeah, if you're looking for a technically classified horror movie that you don't want to be scared by, Scanners is not a bad place to start. However, it is a good movie and there are very disturbing visuals and ideas that happen in it. Whether or not I personally think it's a horror movie, eh, I don't think it really matters in this case. I still think it's very appropriate for our podcast in general. But um, I just had a curiosity before we like go into the movie itself. What classifies as a, as a horror movie for you? I mean, I think beyond the gore, which I mean, this movie has, you know some very extreme sequences of gore and violence and we're going to go more into detail on this but just the idea of fear of the other being the other and fearing the establishment the whole idea of like paranoia and not trusting like giant faceless corporations the idea of like what it means to be you know, monster and losing your own humanity and gaining humanity. And what does that mean? Just like all of that back and forth, I think is a lot of what he's playing with. And it's not as body horror centric as some of his later stuff like Videodrome, especially in The Fly and Dead Ringers all kind of get into. This is a little more surface level, but I still think it qualifies for that. You know, like you said, it's essentially X-Men, but if X-Men was way more, like, fucked up and adult in terms of how it's dealing with things, I think it certainly qualifies, you know, for all those reasons. Yeah, and there are there are scenes that are pretty horrific based on what, what oh, kind yeah. of, like, body horror and all that. One of the greatest gore gags of all time is in this movie. There are probably listeners who know about that gore gag that have never seen this movie before. Oh, and we'll, we'll comment on that, too, when we get to it. Overall, this is something that Cronenberg made when he was definitely kind of early in his career. This is his first big breakout movie. He had made Rabid and Shivers and some of his short films, including Stereo, which Stereo was very much the, like, precursor to this movie that deals with, like, psychic powers and everything else. Doesn't this movie go hand in hand with Videodrome as well? I mean, to a degree, yeah. I think Videodrome is definitely the, like, evolution of this same concept and idea, whereas this movie is more about transcending humanity through humanity itself. Videodrome is more about transcending humanity through technology. So I think they're similar in kind of what they're dealing with, just they're going about it very different ways, all said and done. Well, I think I remember you whenever we've had discussions in the past, like in college and stuff about Cronenberg. I think I remember you telling me that he seems to make, at least for a little while, he made like not trilogies, but three movies that were either style or themes were very similar. Was that the case or is it in pairs? I can't remember exactly what we... I mean, you can you can kind of put his movies together in loose sets in several different ways, depending on how you want to look at things. I would say the most obvious, like, transformation movies would be Videodrome the Fly, Dead Ringers. If we want to talk about, like, the losing your humanity kind of aspect, I mean, all three of those fit in that as well, but I would also put this movie in there, um, along with, you know, maybe, like, The Fly and Dead Ringers as well. To me, Scanners does the whole devolution of oneself and losing one's humanity and becoming more monstrous over the course of the movie to the point where you're like a shell of the person that you were. You're no longer recognizable as who you were. You know, that's The Fly, that's Videodrome, that's Dead Ringers, that's even Rabid. But this movie kind of does it the exact opposite, where the hero, the main guy that you're following, starts at that place 
and gradually like becomes more civilized and more human and like regains his humanity by controlling his monstrosity. So it's kind of an inverse of that thing that Cronenberg kind of does a little more or less later. This movie is also not nearly as like sexual innately as his other transformation movies tend to be. Like in Videodrome, The Fly, Dead Ringers are all very, very like heavily sexual movies. And that's not necessarily the case with this one. This one's probably his most asexual movie. Yeah, I didn't even think about that because I've seen Videodrome in the past. I've seen The Fly. I haven't seen Dead Ringers yet, but in comparison to those other two movies, you're absolutely right. <laughs> to me, though, the reason why I also brought it up is because Scanners and Videodrome are almost like when I think of the dark side of the 80s and like evil CD corporate espionage, like shit that you see in Strange. Things like the evil, nameless, faceless corporation, like doing weird science shit. Yes. All of it is owed to scanners and Videodrome specifically. So that's kind of another, like, if we're going to put his movies into sets in terms of themes, that's another set for sure. And I would put The Dead Zone in there as well. Those are kind of his, like, corporate paranoia movies right there. Scanners, The Dead Zone, and Videodrome. So yeah, I mean, you could definitely like put his movies into sets if you want to kind of look at themes that he's clearly exploring and working through. And that's one thing that I've always appreciated about Cronenberg is he has always talked about his movies. He's always talked about like what influences and motivates him. He's not super cagey like a lot of directors are. He's not like David Lynch. Exactly. But he also is a director that works, he's working things out through his movies. Like, you can actively tell that he is working through thoughts and his mindset and kind of, like, the things that he's dealing with as a person on screen, which I really appreciate that. It's I think it's much more interesting. Even if the movie doesn't entirely work for you, you can't say that you weren't at least interested. And at the same time, Cronenberg is one of those directors. Cronenberg is probably the director 100% most like this for me. But he's the kind of director where you might watch a movie of his and hate it for years, potentially, until you go back and rewatch it in just the right mindset, or maybe a little bit older and having gone through some different life events. But Cronenberg, for me, is the number one director where if I didn't 100% click with a movie like when I saw it, I hated it. 100% hated it and took years to go back and rewatch it under a different context to where I understood it better and I appreciated it in a different way. For the most part, I think all of his movies now are movies that I like, but they weren't always that way. Right. So I definitely, you know, this is one that like I always kind of had an appreciation for, but this is a very surface level movie of his, which is why I think it's good that we start with this one and then kind of work our way through his filmography little by little. I'm glad you made that comment. Comment because I would almost make the argument that this is more accessible movie than even The Fly is, even though The Fly is the one totally. that he's probably most well known for. Um, but I feel like The Scanners is is much more surface level and just more accessible in general. Not that it makes it better or worse, it just is. So yeah, we can, we can start getting the movie uh, for you scaredy coward boys like me out there. And girls. And girls and people. This is not particularly scary scary in terms of jump scares or even really there's not like an existential dread that carries through it like a lost highway or anything like that like other stuff that we've covered in the past but there is generally some disturbing imagery 
there is body horror for sure. Paranoia. Paranoia. You just come out of this universe feeling a little, I don't want to say dirty, but like feeling a little dis- despair and that like this this world is kind of fucked. He does a good job of, of setting that. I would have loved to have seen this movie in 1981 when it originally was released because it, yeah. it would make me go into the 80s with not that much hope. Yeah, even though this movie like ends victorious, I guess, for our heroes, it's still like such a downer ending ultimately yeah and it's still kind of a disturbing ending too totally and when we get to it we'll, we'll get more into that but yeah so there are disturbing plot elements for sure if you are not a fan of gore then you you may want to steer clear of this movie but if you can handle gore and it, like me it's more like jump scares and things like that that get you this is a great movie to start with i did get jumped at one or two scenes but it wasn't necessarily meant to be a jump scare it just was something that happened and i'll, I'll get into it more otherwise it is a movie that sat with me for for a while i thought about this movie for a week or two after i watched it the first time and sat with me again for a couple days when i watched it the second time and i think that's just kind of cronenberg in general um i don't know what it is with david's and and making movies that sit with me like david lynch and now david cronenberg cronenberg is a very complicated yet accomplished director and so we are going to get into the plot now so if you want to avoid spoilers like usual because we do scene by scene analysis cut it off here go watch Watch movie and come back. Otherwise, you know, here we go. So, God, the music in this movie is great. I love Howard Shore. I've always liked Howard Shore, but this movie just like opening like a fucking sledgehammer. Yeah, that, that music. That is opening great. fanfare was amazing. Also, to a note I made about like the opening credits because I'm a child. Uh, Dick Smith is the special consultant for special effects, and that <laughs> that name made me laugh because, like I said, I'm a four year old. Dick Smith is one of the good dicks. There's also Dick Warlock, who was on a lot yes. of the Carpenter stuff. So yeah, I mean Dick. Smith is a legend, which they called him on to consult for the makeup on this. That's like what his credit is right at the beginning. They had a lot of people working on the special effects who just couldn't always kind of crack what Cronenberg was wanting. So they had Dick Smith come on, who was legend at that point. I mean, he had already done so much crazy shit, won tons of awards and everything else. Um, He's the guy that did the makeup for stuff like The Exorcist. So they called him in to consult on some of these insane scenes that we'll talk about. Yeah, so the movie starts off in a very nice mall, like a really nice mall, like very fancy looking. You thought it was nice? Uh, Nicer than malls are now, for sure. (laughs) Fuck yeah, like malls now are like desolate, horrible, sad places. Sure, okay. From that standpoint, yes, you're correct. Malls are not what they were when we were like kids. Yeah, exactly. During the height of like 90s consumerism. But my note was actually just like, what the fuck is this like brutalist yet carnival shopping mall yes it looked like a carnival and that's what i wrote down too with all the lighting in it everything is like concrete and cold but then there's like weird red bright funhouse mirrors and light bulbs and just because i think it looks beautiful doesn't mean it would wasn't disturbing there was a weird disturbing nature to it and to the point where i almost like went on to google and tried to look up interiors of malls from the 80s (laughs) to see if there were like a lot of malls like this but anyway total side thing but there's a good tumbler that was like just photos of malls from the 80s and it was literally just people would contribute their own personal photos of just like people walking around malls during that time and it's great 
Yeah, that would make me feel pretty nostalgic because as a kid, I used to go to the mall where I grew up because my dad's business was like right across the street from it. So I'd go hang out in my dad's office sometimes and then walk over to the mall and all that. Anyway, I'm getting off topic. <laughs> we start off with what I wrote down as shitty Professor X, <laughs> played by Stephen Lack, and he plays the character of Cameron Vale. And it's obvious that either he's been on the run or he's been homeless for a little while. He's kind of down out. He's kind of like skulking through the mall. And when people are looking away or throwing out their food in the food court, he's stealing fries and stealing like used cigarettes. It's pretty obvious that he's he's not in a good place in his life. But at the same time, his mannerisms are that of someone on high alert as if he is being tailed. So there are these two older women that are kind of staring at him with disgust, and they're both kind of commenting on, like, look at this gross guy, like, uh, it's disgusting, uh, blah, blah, blah. And that's when he kind of starts, like, concentrating on what they're saying and paying attention to it, and that triggers one of the women to, like, have a seizure, essentially. Like, she starts seizing up and shaking and kind of has a like a mental attack and it was caused by him just kind of mentally lashing out at her kind of in an uncontrolled way and there are some agents that were clearly already keeping an eye on him that immediately kind of start chasing him through the mall yeah and eventually they dart him and you know put him to sleep yeah and when he is doing that to the older woman like it's obvious that it's also hurting him to an extent because he does have a nosebleed and it does look like he's also kind of having a little bit of a seizure as well yeah but yeah so he gets darted and it's like one of those typical like men in black moments where like these just nameless faceless goons like you were saying dart him and abduct him in the middle of the mall and the disturbing part of it is it's a busy mall it's almost as if no one's really noticing it or trying to stop it in any way shape or form it just happens after they captured cameron vale he wakes up in like this weird kind of abandoned loft and he's tied down to a bed and slowly we start to see all these random people wander into the room and sit down there's like a whole row of chairs against the wall and he starts kind of hearing all of their internal thoughts none of them are actually speaking but he's hearing essentially all of their voices jumbled up and it's kind of causing him to have a mental breakdown kind of moment where it's just too much like he's being overloaded by all of their thoughts and then we're introduced to Dr. Ruth who is played by Patrick McGowan, who is kind of a character actor. So he comes in, and to me, you mentioned earlier Professor X, to me, Dr. Ruth is the Professor X of this whole story, and you'll understand why as we get a little bit further down. So he comes in and essentially, like, gives... Cameron Vale, the rundown of just like, you're a scanner, we've been keeping tabs on you for a while, you have these powers, I'm going to help you control them, and we're going to kind of get you back to a place where you're good again. You know, so he explains, I'm going to give you this injection, it's called ephemeral, it's going to kind of help you control the voices and help you block everything out, that's the trouble you've been having, that's what you can't control, you know, I'm going to help you with this. So you kind of have that moment of, this is where we are now. From there, we are introduced to a private security firm known as Consec. Consec, by the way, is such a good name for like a shady corporation from the 80s. I love that name so much. It's such a like generic bullshit name that gives you no indication of what they actually do. I think I've told you before, but there's one that's like close to my parents' house, and it's just called Slocum Radson. 
<laughs> they have a little chemical symbol on their sign. And every time I drive by it, my brother and I would just make fun of it because, like, there's no fucking way that that place is not just, like, making green goblins left and right. Yeah. And just not, you know, we're unaware of it. <laughs> the Umbrella Corporation. <laughs> yeah. There's also another place that I drive past every day on my way to work that's just called Nucor. <laughs> <laughs> and it's spelled like N-U-C-O-R, just Nucor. So, yeah, like there's no way that they're not creating all kinds of abominations in a place like that. Or even when you're driving out to Metairie from downtown New Orleans and you pass like all those businesses and refineries on the right side of the highway. Like yeah. all those as well all look shady as fuck. But yeah, so we're introduced to Consec and I did appreciate these next few scenes because it was exposition, but in a way that it fit in. It wasn't like a character stopping everything and like Telling you yeah. this is the way the world is, blah, blah, blah. You just kind of infer all this information through the scenes that come up. So we're introduced to this. It's kind of like a business meeting or a, a conference that's happening. And it's this bald-headed guy in glasses who actually looks like just a normal middle-aged office worker. And he's talking about the power of scanners. From all this, you learn that scanners are basically psychics who have like telepathy, mind control, technopathy, psychokinesis, telekinesis yada yada so on and so forth any mental power you can think of this is they can do this and the, the consec has their own scanner employed and he's doing this demonstration and he's talking about it and then he's like let me demonstrate on a volunteer in the audience so a man stands up and it's michael fucking ironside um, which got me so excited. He also, off topic for one second, reminded me of Jack Nicholson in The Shining a little bit in this movie as a younger Michael yeah. Ironside and a younger Jack Nicholson. Were, He's kind of got that long, scraggly hair. Yeah, they're very similar in mannerisms and, and their voice and everything else. Um, and he just is menacing through this entire film, like including here at this scene, even though he's trying to come off as, as just a random dude who's totally innocent, there's still like this menacing air to him and it stays with him through the entire movie he sits down and his name is revik r-e-v-o-k which is the most like bad guy name i've ever heard in my life daryl revik yep and so the the context scanner starts trying to scan him and like basically read his mind and and all that and right off the bat he starts feeling something is wrong he starts squirming revik starts kind of squirming a little bit like their eyes roll back in their heads and the concept scanner starts like getting super uncomfortable and starts glancing over at revik and a lot of um discomfort and then just it continues to get worse and worse when all of a sudden the famous scene happens, and I did not know it was happening this early in the movie. The scanner's head literally explodes. Like, from the inside out, if his brain was a grenade, just explodes. And it is one of the best, like, even to this day, it, it's one of the best gore effects I've seen in a movie. And you've seen the gif, if you if you live online at all, or you've seen this gif. Yeah, you've seen this, like, probably somewhere along the way, not realize it's what it is. Um, but yeah, apparently he just causes his head to explode through hydrostatic shock, but also like massively increased blood pressure just that effect is really cool. They tried a couple of different ways to make it work. They initially made like a plaster mold of the actor's head and they blew it up. But of course it 
just shatters and it looked like plaster. So then they made one out of wax and that also just kind of exploded and looked like wax because it's kind of hunky and doesn't really tear and move in the same way that flesh does. So eventually they built a bust and a head that was done with some kind of latex rubber and they just filled it with all kinds of like blood and just scraps that were laying around and they filled it even with like hamburgers that were left over from lunch that day. Just whatever garbage was laying around, they filled the whole thing up and they hooked an air hose up to it initially just to like blast it with air, but all that did was kind of inflate it like a balloon so it didn't really pop the way they needed to. And finally, like after being there pretty much all day, one of the camera guys or somebody on set was just like, fuck it. Went out to his car, got a shotgun out of the trunk. They filled the shotgun with like rock salt and cleared the set. And he was like the only person on set. They put four cameras on it. He just got down behind the desk and just blasted the fucking thing with the the shotgun full of rock salt. That's to get that fantastic. Effect. And it was just kind of like a one take <laughs> thing, but it you know it's incredible the way it looks. Like there's no other way they really could have got it. And that's the kind of bullshit that they used to get away with in making movies that there's like no fucking way you could ever do now. Like if anybody on set was like, I'm just gonna go out to my trunk and get a shotgun and shoot this prop. There's no way. There's no way you could get away with something like yeah, that. Yeah, that's fantastic. I didn't know the story behind that scene. And I will admit, for the longest time, my general interest in scanners was all from this GIF and this scene in general. I I just it's been over the inter- all over the internet for years and years now. For the longest time, I didn't know what movie it was from, and when I did find out what movie it was from, Scanners was just always in the back of my mind as a movie I wanted to check out. And then you know, as I learned a little bit more about it and appreciated more of Cronenberg's other work, it just increased my interest in this movie. So I am glad we're we're finally covering it. But yeah, so just FYI, this happened happens at about the 13 minute 15 second mark if this is something that sounds like would get under your skin and make you like either jump scare you or make you crawl fyi it does happen a lot earlier in the movie than i thought it would i think definitely if even if if gore is not your thing it's still such an incredible special effect and it's over so quick i think you should watch it (laughs) yeah no i love it watch it just to like see that in motion essentially yeah and i love because i even looked up like a slow motion of that scene because the head just erupts and that there's something just beautiful oh it's gnarly gnarly like yeah beautiful and disgusting about it i love it so yeah so everyone like obviously in the conference room is just fucking scared so like people are like starting to run yell and scream and like Revic starts basically trying to escape and the contact people realize like oh shit he is a scanner so they like tackle him in the side lobby area one of the doctors that's with him or scientists draws up something in a syringe and then it, it, whether it's to sedate him or whatever and he's about to give it to Revic well you catch a, a glimpse of the scene where Revic stares at the doctor for a second and the doctor acts like he's giving the shot to Revic, but instead gives it to himself. Um, and Revic acts like he, he was sedated. So they drag him out into, uh, it's like a security car and they're escorting him on the highway. Revic, since he was basically playing possum, he wakes up and he starts using his powers to basically cause a car wreck and cause the other security cars to all crash. He like, 
takes over the mind of the driver of the car ahead of them and runs that car off the road and then he like gets somebody else to like shoot another driver so he basically just uses his mind control to get out of the situation and there is some more gore in these scenes this is pretty much right after the head explosion scene so it's kind of just all over the place it's like gunshots it's just yeah. you know people being shot it's not like more heads being exploded yeah no it's not that bad but it is kind of like that 80s style gore yeah where it's a little over the top but not necessarily like head explosion um but it was fucking funny because uh the second security car that crashes blows up like right after it crashes and i don't think that's how that works but (laughs) after revic escapes we essentially see like all the board members of Consex sitting around talking about like what the fuck to do this reminded me of the scene in uh robocop like with all the just corporate douchebags in the boardroom together anyway yeah they're all sitting around just kind of talking about like what to do now and they have like a new head of security named Braden killer played by lawrence dane he is all about fuck the scanners program get rid of it it's going nowhere it's dumb dr ruth is crazy you know we just need to like scratch this entire program we don't need it and dr ruth basically says well the guy who uh killed all those people last night was a scanner so it completely justifies my program of trying to figure out who these people are and what to do with them and everything else you find out that they had identified about 230 scanners who were like known and active and of course they're like well cool how many of them are actually working with us zero yeah and that's when dr ruth kind of jumps in and says well looks to the side points to head maybe we could get one on our side who then can infiltrate this rogue group that revic has been gathering to him this underground of scanners and they're like okay where do we have a scanner just laying around don't worry wink at audience i already have one (laughs) And uh, something I do appreciate about this movie, too, is it's never 100% laid out like what Consec would do with their scanner. Yeah. They set up like Consec, these are the good guys. No, they're really not the good guys. They're just another corporation, uh, another security firm that really just wants something like a weapon on their side, basically. Dr. Ruth is a complicated character because on one hand, it seems like he does care about Vale and and scanners in general. Like uh, he does act very professor x like that but then there's also like that dark side of him that that's like well at the end of the day he's helping consec and he's helping their security program and getting basically somebody who can manipulate people's minds and harm them that way so let's talk about dr ruth kind of right up front and this is something that i was going to bring up a little bit later but we can talk about it now since you're kind of already starting to address it 100 percent, dr ruth is the actual villain of this movie right Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> yes. I would agree. And that's why I think he's very much Professor X. He's the good guy, but all of his motives and methods are like, what are you doing? Yeah, at the end of the day, he's sending child, like teenage soldiers out into the field. Yes. Like Professor X. <laughs> so Dr. Ruth is definitely like the villain of this movie. Even to the point where like, he's the one wearing black through the entire movie. You know, there there is like some of that basic iconography in the movie. Like when you first see Cameron Vale after he's rescued, rescued in air quotes, he's wearing all white. Dr. Ruth is wearing all black. Later in the movie, Revic, who's essentially been put up as being the villain this whole time, he's actually wearing like pretty even like white and black. Um, so there's just little things like that here and there, but Dr. Ruth is definitely like, 
he's ultimately the villain. We'll discuss it more why, but he's the one that kind of is the cause of a lot of what's going on. So just kind of keep that in mind as we're going through the plot. He's got more going on than what he lets on to. Yeah, and uh, so some other stuff I wanted to touch on real fast because uh, you had covered over it. Whenever, for instance, in that scene when Dr. Ruth brought in all those people and Vale kind of had that breakdown, it's a very interesting audio effect that the movie takes when like people are scanning each other and like listening to each other's thoughts. It starts off as like idle chatter and it almost gets put on a loop and it gets progressively louder. It gets more and more like distorted and yeah, it's like, like a high-pitched noise in the back of it too yeah it's like a maddening drone like type of audio it's very interesting and also kind of anxiety inducing yeah i really did enjoy that little bit of like the just any anytime they scan anybody in this movie that audio is is what i remember the most so yeah so after all of that Vale basically meets with dr ruth and dr ruth kind of gives them more ephemeral which again is such a good drug name for like a fictional drug that yeah. like does shit with people who can read minds ephemeral Ephemeral is a fantastic name. So he gives him more ephemeral to kind of just restore his sanity and like inhibit his scanning ability. And he makes him cognitive enough to where they can kind of talk about Revic. And he explains what Revic's been doing and like how Revic's been killing all these other scanners who refuse to join his underground. And he keeps telling Vale that like under his guidance, Vale can learn to control his abilities. They talk about one of the things that I really did enjoy was that he mentions Revic was having like so much pressure and discomfort in his own brain as a scanner that he decided to drill a hole in his own head and like throughout the movie you do see like the scar of like a hole in the middle of his forehead almost like a a symbolic third eye it's right between his eyes kind of on the bridge of his nose and dr ruth actually shows him some video footage from an interview that was done you know presumably years ago with revik where he's got an actual bandage over that part of his head where he has drawn a third eye on to the actual bandage itself. You know, they're asking him questions and he it's just basically him like kind of losing control and freaking out. Yeah, so I did kind of jump at the scene the first time I watched it. It's not necessarily a jump scare, but it's it kind of does go from like a quiet moment to yelling. Revik's just kind of slowly talking really low really menacing and then he just like loses his patience and yells and like slams the the table and it yeah he just goes full ironside yeah and like it goes from low to high audio very quick and it kind of jump at me because i was kind of like being drawn into his his what he was saying and then out of nowhere he kind of freaks out and i just i did i liked that whole imagery of him drilling a hole like where you would potentially have your third eye i thought that was just a very neat and very nice character touch so kind of while that is happening, you also kind of find out Brandon Keller, the one who is advocating for Consex shutting down their scanner program, you kind of find out that he is a spy for Revic to no one's surprise. Yeah. So that's another like that's another plot element that also comes up a little bit later on. They meet each other at the train depot and kind of sit next to each other and kind of talk past each other like spies do so yeah there's no surprise that you know he's on Revic's side the whole time yeah while dr ruth has veil as well they kind of have like the training montage that's very brief where you see him go up against this guy who's like a yoga master and has all these like great mental strengths and he essentially scans this guy and overwhelms him 
pretty much immediately. So it's just that scene of like, you know, try out your new power. Oh, but I'm not good at controlling this power. Sure, you'll be fine at it. Way goes overboard with the power. Like, okay, yeah, I got it. Cool, sounds good. So something that like kind of creeped me a little bit out is after he did that to the yoga master, Vale like looks like Dr. Ruth and he's, and he's just like, it was easy. And he has like this like real creepy, almost like smile on his face after he says it. And I was like, red flag, ding. <laughs> How how did you feel about Stephen Lack's performance in this movie? Because I like obviously Ironside is going to be boss, and Patrick McGowan's really good in here as well. But what did you think about Stephen Lack's performance? Because honestly, he's probably my least favorite element of this movie. I would agree with you. I do understand the way he is acting. Like I I think it fits for the character he's portraying <laughs> in some ways. <laughs> um, but yeah, he's just kind of spacey for a while. Like during the movie, I really was waiting for that heel turn where like he was going to turn into the bad guy in some way because he just like makes choices to where and it might be on purpose to where you are afraid of him as well and a little uneasy around him and distrustful of him. He kind of tries to be Harrison Ford and Blade Runner where Harrison Ford's Blade Runner isn't necessarily a straight good guy. Like there's a lot of kind of douchebag elements to his character but that character and Harrison Ford do a better job than Stephen Lack does in this and he also like slowly starts acting above everyone else which I guess is the point but yeah those those are kind of my thoughts on his character what about you I don't know I'm not a huge fan of his performance um I think they could have gotten somebody who can bring a little more nuance to what that role is supposed to be because like I mentioned earlier this movie kind of takes the opposite approach of a lot of the Cronenberg movies where he starts at a place of dehumanization and gradually becomes more civilized and more human as the movie progresses and he's more in control of his power. You know, so as he accepts and embraces his monstrousness, essentially, like he's empowered rather than like destroyed by it. And even at like full monster mode, both Vale and Revic, and even the character Pierce that we're about to talk to in a second, although he's like more in control thanks to like his method of therapy that he's discovered. They're wild, they're uncontrollable, you know, they're physically gross, and they're lacking any sense of self or identity or purpose or anything. He's literally like a homeless wanderer when we first meet him. You know, when they learn to control that power and kind of compartmentalize the monster in them, that they kind of become clean-cut and well-dressed and stable. I mean, Revic is even like the CEO of this like rival chemical company that we'll find out in a minute. You know, if we're talking about like fear and like what makes us scared in this movie... You know, I think that is one of the biggest fears, that, like, fear of becoming the monster and, like, losing control of your life and losing your identity. Whether, like, the monster in air quotes is, you know, mental illness or poverty or a physical disability of some kind. Like, whatever that abject, not to society's norms kind of thing. Just that fear that we all have of, like, that taking over and, again, like, just losing control, losing your identity and your purpose and your, like, sense of self and just being, like, a full wild feral kind of thing. I am the demons. Yeah. I, I think that's a that's a really big idea that this movie's doing, and I don't necessarily feel like Stephen Lack has 
talent necessary to really pull off that nuance. And some scenes I think he does, but in a, a, for overall, I think you, there could have been better performances based on different actors if they were in this role. And then it's funny you mention all of that because at the same time, like as he becomes more comfortable with his powers and becomes quote unquote more civilized, again, it just feels also too like he slowly starts acting like he's ascended, like he's above everything else and above everyone else too, to the point where I almost distrust him as much as Revic in this. In fact, you know what Revic wants and what he's trying to do. With Vale, I don't always know what he's thinking and what he wants to do. Yeah, I think it's partly just because like he's just now come out of his dereliction to society. Right. And so he's just now being acclimated and again, going back to Dr. Ruth being the actual villain of this movie, like he's being kind of fed like every step that he needs to do. And he's just doing it, like, unequivocally. Which kind of brings us to the next point in the story, where Dr. Ruth basically explains to Vale that he needs to infiltrate the underground group. And the one lead that they have on it is this scanner named Benjamin Pierce, who is an artist, and he is kind of an unaffiliated scanner right now. So the whole idea is contact Pierce, who may know more, dot dot dot. Right. So, uh, who do, who plays Pierce in this movie? Pierce is Robert Silverman. Gotcha. I actually enjoyed Pierce's character. He's he's not in the movie for very long, but the little bit of time he is in this movie, I did enjoy. So, Vale goes to an art gallery or art showing of some of Pierce's work. As he's kind of perusing around, like, you catch glimpses of Pierce's work, and it's all... There's, like, a disturbing edge to his artwork. Some of it is genuinely very nice work art like whoever in the prop department whoever was responsible for making the artwork did a pretty good job but on top of that there's also just kind of hints that pierce is a very disturbed person a lot of his artwork kind of is symbolic about being a scanner of just it has to do like with his mind or other people's minds it's kind of hard to describe without seeing the movie and kind of seeing his artwork in the background of the movie itself this I also felt this was kind of Cronenberg esque, like some of the artwork in this this scene. What what about you? What did you think? Yeah, it's all very like kind of gross and disturbing, but it like you said, it all kind of plays into like him expressing his struggles through his art, and that's part of the reason why he's in control of his powers. The artwork is all things like you know these kind of grotesque doctors with needles and tools standing around him, just kind of glaring, and they're all very inhuman looking and monstrous and there's another one where there's all these faces that are kind of making different expressions and they all have these colored pieces of yarn stretching down to this one head and all kind of meeting at the center of the forehead and this one face is just kind of an agony you know so there's there's lots of imagery that plays into his scanning past yeah and a lot of his artwork too is kind of reminiscent of a little bit of his reminiscent of like silent hill monsters i haven't seen jacob's ladder from start to finish but i understand some of the, some of that's like the imagery in this some of it's like that yeah Vale is basically trying to track him down he is not necessarily at his own gallery he's trying to like find out information about him and he's talking to the gallery manager who's you know saying like well we can't set up a meeting sorry yeah Vale is pretending to be this like art enthusiast from Paris yeah <laughs> which how did he go from like being a hobo who like was almost feral to being sophisticated enough to be as a passable art critic from Paris you know scanning powers bro yeah <laughs> 
but yeah, and, uh, doesn't he just wind up reading their mind and just getting information about where Pierce is anyway or something? Yes, and when he does that, it catches the attention of another woman who's there. She then kind of turns around and scans him. And so he kind of detects that something's off with her, but then when he kind of turns around to look where she was, she's disappeared. Yeah. Um, so he tracks down where Pierce is and kind of finds his, his art gallery workshop area. He enters the building and you find more of Pierce's artwork. And this artwork is a little bit even more disturbing than the ones at his gallery because some of it is unfinished. Some of it are pieces that he might not necessarily want anyone to see. It's very fascinating. At one point, there's like a gigantic sculpture of a face that's laying on the ground sideways. And uh, there's something unsettling about that. I love that one. That's the one that he loves like kind of walks around his shop and then goes around the back side of it and you see the back side is hollowed out and it's like a lounge area yes yeah where there's all these big like red cushiony tufts that look like brain matter on the inside yeah i really enjoyed this scene in general just like the prop layout of the scene and everything i just really like his his workshop was very fascinating to look at disturbing but also fascinating um so he meets with pierce and basically wanting to know the whereabouts of revic because pierce i guess at one point was contacted by revic to join his underground but pierce does really want to do anything with his scanning abilities he uses his artwork as therapy to kind of help with you can tell that scanning has kind of affected him mentally and he doesn't enjoy the ability and he's been using his artwork to kind of cope with it so as they're talking assassins arrive who were sent by revic and basically start shooting at them and in the shootout pierce gets killed Vale, at this point, becomes enraged and starts using his telepathic powers to kill some of the some of the assassins. This is where he starts coming into his own as, like, a force of nature, like, something to be reckoned with, as he just, like, immediately kind of, like, takes over two or three people at the same time and just, like, fucking telekinetic throws them, mind melts them, whatever. The scene starts off goofy at first. These extreme close-ups on camera as he's just staring dramatically (laughs) looking off into the distance and then you see the four assassins just kind of standing there and like shaking their heads and kind of twitching but then all of a sudden they're like literally bodily like thrown across the room 10-20 feet his abilities are pretty ridiculous when you see them at full blast yeah and so as pierce is dying Vale reads his mind and he gets a name he gets the name of kim obrist whenever the scanning for uh, people's thoughts is happening in these scenes there is that weird muffled audio and it's almost like their voice in her voices but it's very like muffled very distorted and it's a very interesting audio touch that is kind of just throughout the entire movie in association with scanning there's a little bit of some of the unsettling nature of the movie comes out in those audio cues so yeah there's more of that throughout these scenes yeah the sound editing in this movie is really great the soundtrack blends into that as well because you have these big operatic traditional movie score moments from shore but then you have a lot of this electronic atmospheric noise instead of an actual score so it it blends in really interesting ways yeah um something else that was kind of funny is that anytime you see guns in this movie they're all like the same shotgun yeah everyone uses it concept people use it these assassins use it just everyone has this one type of shotgun in this it's movie. almost as like they only had four prop guns to work with <laughs> yeah 
<laughs> That's what I thought too. So yeah, so he finds out this name, Kim Obrist. He winds up tracking her down and you kind of infer from all of this and find out that she's almost a part of this other underground group of scanners who are just kind of trying to live freely. They don't necessarily agree with Revic either. At one point, they all kind of join in at like a powwow circle yeah. with Vale and they're all like kind of scanning together. And it was a little bit of a goofy scene, but at the same time, it was effective. When Vale first gets there, the guy at the door kind of scans him, you know, like, okay, yeah, you're one of us and lets him in. You know, he goes in, that's when he first sees Kim Obrist. And Kim Obrist is the woman that he saw in the art gallery earlier who scanned him. Yeah. So now, like, he knows for sure, like, he's in the right place and something's going on. So since we've kind of touched on other people's performances, how did you feel about Jennifer O'Neill's performance as Kim in this? She's great. She was she was really great in it. It's unfortunate that she doesn't really have a ton to do necessarily, but I think it's interesting that given her status as the token female character, she's never made into like the love interest of Vale. She's never sexualized. She's not even like motherly in her characterization either. She's just kind of there as another character. Yeah. But they don't specifically like go to the standard tropes of here's the lone female character and this is what she's going to be there for. An unseen mechanism of the plot involves femininity, which we're going to get to in a minute, but it's never like explicitly placed onto her. So I kind of wish that she was a little more active in the plot instead of just being drug around as a sidekick to Vale with not really having anything active to do. But I think she's really great, and I wish that they had done more with her. I think her performance is really solid. Yeah, I would basically agree with you on all those points. So as they're doing this, uh, assassins attack again. And I wrote again, how did they not see this coming? It's a group of scanners. They're all scanning at the same time all around them. And then all of a sudden, fucking assassins just arrive and start gunning them down. Some of them are the same people that attacked Vale earlier when he was at Pierce's kind of artist loft area. But during this scene right beforehand, you do see Revic standing outside the building kind of on the in the alleyway and it kind of has a fade between him and then like the two or three assassins so i get the idea that maybe these assassins are just regular people that revic is controlling right and not that like they are scanners that are in line with him right that's at least the impression that i got is that they're not like part of his underground they're just people that he has kind of taken over yeah that was one of my two theories of who they were my other theory was that maybe they are scanners or people in his underground and he's protecting them as they enter this room with his own abilities. Potentially, yeah. Um, But I think it would fall more in line with the type of character he is that these are just other people that he's just taken over. Yeah, that he's just using as disposable tools essentially which that's exactly what happens is they go in and there's kind of this powwow group circle where they're they're not in tune with their surroundings to know what's happening they walk in they immediately kill the guy at the door and then go in and just shotgun three or four of the people in the circle enough to where it breaks the circle's concentration essentially and that's when kim kind of freaks out and unleashes like whoosh like a big wave at them and they slam against the wall and immediately catch on fire which was fucking cool yeah that was pretty damn cool and 
through all this, uh, during all this too, Vale learns from one of the assassins that he scans a drug company, and I love the name of this fucking place, uh, Biocarbon, what was the f- second part of the name? It's Biocarbon Amalgamate. Amalgamate, yeah. Bio- I couldn't remember if it was bi- Biocarbon uh, Amalgamate or another, or Foundation or something like that, but yeah. I just love that name, Biocarbon. <laughs> well, it's another one of those, like, random, you know, innocuous kind of names, and then, like I said, they're just cooking up green goblins. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, after they are attacked, Vale and Obris and two or three of the other people escape and they make it out of the building and they hop in their van and they're getting away and then all of a sudden another van of assassins comes up beside them and shoots up their van and it crashes into a record store and you see Vale and Obris get out of the van and kind of go down to the basement. One of the assassins follows them into the basement and right as he's about to shoot them, Vale kind of catches him and freezes him. And that's when he's kind of looking for clues and trying to scan him. He essentially forces the assassin to pull a vial of the ephemeral out of his pocket. And you can assume that they were going to use the ephemeral on Vale and Obris to dampen their powers essentially so they can't fight back but he like gets into the guy's mind and forces him to pull the bottle out of his pocket to show the logo and this is another thing that i really like about this movie in general there are huge overall chunks of this story that are missing you know like how did Vale go from being this hobo who can't control his scanning abilities you know again to like being a double agent who now has, like, Zen control over everything, and he's now, like, socially sophisticated enough to, like, be an art snob going undercover. You feel like you're missing big chunks of the overall story. It feels like a TV edit of a longer movie or a TV show, you know what I mean? But the one thing that I do like about it is with the plot moving so lightning quick, because this this movie is like just over an hour and a half, but the plot moves so quick. On one hand, like the methodology in the storytelling is great. It, it's interesting like how things connect because even though you're missing huge chunks of the story, I like how scenes will often end on a question or, or like a new revelation or just some like leading piece of plot. And then the next scene immediately like starts by answering or replying like to that. So I like the whole at the beginning during the corporate board meeting, them being like, where are we going to get an unaffiliated scanner from? And Dr. Ruth just kind of, you know, gives them the like knowing look. And then it cuts immediately to Cameron being trained. Yeah. It's the same thing here where the assassin pulls the bottle out of his pocket with the bicarbonate amalgamate logo on it. And you're like, what is this? And then it immediately cuts to like the giant sign for the company right there on the road with the symbol yeah so it starts with the question and then it immediately answers the question like through the storytelling so that's one thing that i do really like about the movie yeah and in the hands of a lesser filmmaker i think this movie could be a total disaster oh totally a a disjointed mess there are, I mean, moments of it that do feel a little rushed, but generally I followed along the movie no problem, and in, at the end of the movie you realize how much information has been thrown at you, how this whole universe has been established in less than two hours, Yeah, and you don't even realize it by the end. It does something right. So yeah, they, they figure out the name of this company, Biocarbon, um, rival douchebag com- company number 452 of yeah. the 80s. Um, They're making... <laughs> 
symbiotes at this one. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. So they infiltrate it, and there Vale finds out that large quantities of, of ephemeral are being distributed under a computer program called Ripe. While he's doing like his hacking and all that stuff, he finds out that Ripe is being run by Revik himself through Consec. So from here, Vale and Kim return to Consec. Um, and these scenes, like with them coming back to Consec, are pretty interesting because it's like the corporate helicopter flying in, dropping them off on like the lawn of like this giant building in the middle of not nowhere, but kind of away from like any downtown areas. Yeah. And like they're going to the building. They basically call in ahead of time and he tells Dr. Ruth like, Hey, you know, like I found something, you know, I went to this company. I saw Revic there. You know, I found this computer program and it's all running through the company that we are working for. Like what the fuck is going on? And that's the point where Dr. Ruth is just like, all right, uh, y'all got to come in. Uh, so once they arrive, they actually get separated from each other. And Ruth kind of meets with Vale and they're discussing kind of what's going on. And Ruth actually even suggests to Vale cyberpathically scanning the computer system to learn more about what Ripe is in the program. And it's because he doesn't have clearance. Like he doesn't have the access codes to get into the program and look at it on the concept side. So yeah, Dr. Ruth is just like, well, a computer computer has a nervous system yeah. you have a nervous system <laughs> that's essentially like... all that scanning is so just scan the computer yeah, okay. like i loved that line computers have a nervous system just because that's like the most 80s logic bullshit yeah. when it comes to computers that i've ever heard let's talk about actual scanning for a minute because that's one thing i do find fun about this movie is as the course of the movie goes on there's like more and more actual shit heaped on top of scanning in the broad stroke idea. Like we've already mentioned, it's telepathy, which is mind control. Empathy, where you can like force other people to feel like what you're feeling. Biopathy, which is sinking someone's body with your body. Cyberpathy, or like technopathy, which is where you like actually interface with machinery. And then like psychokinesis or telekinesis, which is like moving things with your brain. And even like pyrokinesis, which is what we talked about earlier, like setting someone on fire. So there's all these like different elements of what this base set of powers kind of falls under. It's one of those movie making sins that I kind of hate where the power is whatever the plot needs it to be at that moment. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, that's one of the few complaints I do have about this movie is, okay, I get, like, mind control or, like, telekinesis are kind of similar, but, like, oh, here's a computer. Psychically talk to the computer because nervous systems, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> Reasons. Yeah, yeah. It's, like, it's like Jean Grey, uh, Cypher, Doug Ramsey, and, like, Typhoid Mary, yeah. all from Marvel Comics, rolled up into one being. That's what doesn't make sense to me, like, the computer part of it. Scanning is a physical thing. Like, they talk about that in the movie earlier. Like, there's a physical component to scanning. It's not just, like, mind control. Because you see them have nosebleeds and that kind of thing. Dr. Ruth actually says, like, it's the linking of two nervous systems over space. So it's not just energy, necessarily. Like, there's an actual, like, physical, psychic connection between two people. Which necessitates, like, a whole body reaction. Like, we see much more violent reactions to it, you know, in a little bit. 
but it's there is a more physical component to it. So it doesn't make sense to me that you would be able to do this with a machine. The link happens, which we're about to see in a minute, because something that happens to, like, the machine then happens to, like, Cameron. But that part makes no sense to me because there's no, like, living organism there. It's just kind of, again, it's, it's whatever the plot needs it to be. Yeah, so two things uh, off of that. One, I think this is one of the very few moments of just kind of let's get past this type of storytelling whatever the plot needs the powers to be i just think it's lazy convenience granted it's still one of the very few times in the movie that it leans on something like this and while it is goofy it's still interesting and it's handled in a way that's visually interesting and and i enjoyed watching these scenes unfold with the computer system and then number two again maybe it's just like cronenberg being like 80s logic yeah computers are ais all computers might have a soul question mark yeah maybe a lot of it's just it's the early days of computers what are computers not quite sure what a computer is we have created ai yeah yeah so once they get back to consec again like you said they're separated and ruth goes in to talk to Vale specifically and tells him to like scan the computer system to figure out more about ripe yep and then Kim gets taken off to the side with Keller, the security guy, and he's kind of acting sort of creepy to her. Yeah, he thinks he's just going to, like, interrogate her through the normal methods that people normally interrogate you with, like just threats and that kind of thing. Yeah, I forget exactly what happens at the scene, like, with her. What? what how does it end and they get to the, we get to the next part? She basically, like, psychically attacks him because he's got a gun in her face and he's threatening her because that's just the only way that he knows to interrogate people. So, of course, she, like, uses her abilities to, like, throw him across the room and escape. And at that point, Dr. Ruth kind of has his revelation finally. Like, he puts two and two together of, like, what the ripe program is and what's been going on this whole time. So he kind of has this moment where he starts to, like, recall things from his past in vague terms that the audience doesn't quite understand yet. And he kind of gives into the fact that, like, oh, yeah, this is all my fault. I'm the cause of all this. And he doesn't tell you why, necessarily. But then Keller walks in and sees him and is basically just like, all right, enough of this shit, and shoots him and kills him. Yeah, so Dr. Ruth gets killed by Keller, and then Vale and Kim start fleeing from the Consec building. There is a cool scene where in the hallway, and both Vale and Kim are kind of like telepathically fighting off the security. I liked this scene a lot because it also just demonstrated that Kim is also a very powerful person with her abilities because she totally fucks up some of the security. Yeah, she makes she makes one of the security guys think that she is that guy's mother. Mother, yeah. So he's like breaking down and crying and be like, Mom, why are you doing this, Mom? No. That scene was actually kind of creepy. Yeah. Also, to the alarm that goes off in this building is just so 80s. I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Once they flee the building, some distance away, they go to a telephone booth, and there, Vale uses the telephone booth to cyberpathically access the computer network. And again, this kind of falls back onto, like, powers, dot, 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 what are they? Yeah. Plot convenience. Since he wasn't able to, like, scan the computer system while he was in the building before they had to escape, he then just, oh yeah, I can just do this through a phone, right? (laughs) And just goes to a fucking phone booth and, like, taps into the computer through the phone. And I think that this scene's cool. Like, I like the photography where you're getting these really cool macros of the insides of the computer circuit boards and there's red lights and everything. It does look 
kind of interesting and organic in a weird way. Like, I think that's what's fun about, like, the red to pink lighting. Like, it makes it feel like you're looking at something inside of a body when you're just inside of a computer. But yeah, he essentially, like, taps in through the computer that way, and the people at Consec realize that the computer system is being accessed. They contact Keller, and Keller, like, rushes into the room, and like you were saying, they kind of cut to and from the telephone booth, and then back to the computer room, and I liked the computer room, too. I liked how it's set up. It was, like, all white and just filled with, like, 80s-style technology and... Giant computers. Yeah, people in white coats. And so Keller is just like, what the fuck's happening? They kind of slowly deduce that Vale is hacking the computer system. Um, while he's in there, he's basically kind of pulling up like the ephemeral shipment information, um, I guess, in hopes to track down people who have been receiving it. So Keller, in hopes to either like kind of stop him from doing it or even straight up kill him, wants the computer system just straight up shut down while Vale is scanning it because dot, dot, dot reasons. Because he thinks like, okay, well, they're like linked together. together so if I shut down one nervous system, I'll shut his down. Yes. Yeah. They start doing it. And of course, there's also like the people in the room being like, oh, but this could cause a problem. And then yeah. a- another guy's like, no, it'll be totally fine. Yeah. All those other fucking nerds are just like, uh, I don't know about doing this, Dr. <laughs> Killer. Uh, it's probably not safe. Uh, there's like a backup. Uh. Yeah. And he's just like, fuck all of y'all. I have a gun. Turn this shit off. Fucking do it. And if I was one of, one of the other ones that was like near the door, because there were a couple that like could easily just gotten out of the room at at any yeah. point i would have been <laughs> out the fucking out. door just like okay bros i'm fired see y'all so as they do it they, they they shut it down and you start it starts cutting back to veil and veil is having some kind of reaction to it and you hear the, these weird auditory cues and everything happening and then suddenly like it cuts back to the computer room and i loved it after they shut down the computer and keller's like is it over and one of the scientist guys is like see i told you no fireworks and then the, Bam. Then the computer room <laughs> blows up and kills like all of them and i fucking laughed so hard at that after that happens like it kills keller and the scientists it cuts back to the phone booth the gas station nearby starts blowing up phone booth like is melting yeah it's like the damage is coming through the phone network because you see the phone in cameron's hand starts to smoke and like this black liquid pours out of the phone which you know what the hell is inside that phone that's liquid but the phone like starts catching on fire and like melting you see power lines start to like melt and sizzle and then eventually like burn and like fall to the ground and there's a guy pumping gas at the gas station who's just like whoop 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 gotta get out of here and (laughs) drops the fucking gas pump and you know sprays gas everywhere and it hits the electricity which okay electricity will ignite gas okay and blows up the gas station so yeah once they blow up this phone booth they have to kind of get the fuck out (laughs) yeah so they wind up going to visit a doctor who was on the list of these ephemeral recipients and while they're at this office Vale goes into the back with the doctor and Kim is kind of out in the waiting room and she starts like looking down and starts feeling as if she's being scanned and slowly you find out that one of the pregnant women's near her stomach like she starts looking at her stomach and she realizes that the fetus is the one scanning her and then Vale at the same time infers that the ephemeral is actually causing the fetuses to become scanners when administered to these women. This is kind of like the big twist of the movie is that the ephemeral 
while it might dampen the powers of scanners, it ultimately can create new scanners of unborn babies. Yeah, so we still don't know, like, why the ephemeral is being shipped and sent to doctor's offices and given to, like, women. But, yeah. you know, that's that's what's happening right now. Yeah. Uh, after a while this is happening, Revik and his men yet again ambush them, and this time they abduct both Kim and Vale. They get brought to what you can assume is biocarbon to meet with Revik. In the next scenes, as Revik meets with Vale, Revik starts kind of doing an exposition dump on Vale. You find out that Dr. Ruth was the one who he actually was designing a drug as a tranquilizer for pregnant women. And during this process, he learned that one of the drug's side effects was creating scanners out of the unborn fetuses. He pulls out like a Life magazine from the 50s and like throws it on the table and opens it up. And there's like an ad for ephemeral. Yeah. Um, so it was being kind of marketed as this designer drug for pregnant women to like help with their pregnancies. But yeah, like over the course of testing it, Ruth figures out like, oh shit, the side effect is that it creates scanners. And he had been giving it to his wife during her pregnancy. Yeah, which is not out of the realm of possibilities. That, I mean, regardless of like telepathic abilities, but just kind of weird side effects being discovered when they're designing like with designer drugs is not unheard of because I mean, shit, they found out that boner pills can help with blood pressure and help with like congestive heart failure yeah. and things like that. So it's kind of one of those things that that is interesting how this movie touched on this even as far back as 1981. Yeah, and so you kind of also find out that Dr. Ruth was actually testing out this drug on his own pregnant wife, which, what? <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Brevicton says that, like, he and Vale are actually brothers. Yeah. And that Dr. Ruth was, like, both their fathers. And that they are, like, the product of this first initial oops with the ephemeral drug. And because the mom received the highest dose of the drug, Revik and Vale are like the most powerful scanners out there. This all wraps back around to what I was talking about earlier, where Dr. Ruth is 100% the fucking villain of this movie. Absolutely. He purposely uses his fucking wife as a guinea pig, not once, but twice. Because technically, Revik is the older brother. Two times. Washes his hands of his, like, literal actual children. Tries to wash his hands of the drug that he created as well. And even, like, to the point where he even, like, sells the company that's making Ephemeral off to this other company that's still associated with Consec. He doesn't even separate himself from it enough to, like, completely step away. He just hands it over to another company and is still, like, involved with it on a side basis. Because when Vale initially comes to him and says, Hey, we found this weird shit with this other company that's making it. Do you know anything about it? And Dr. Ruth is just like, Uh, hmm, I don't know. I haven't had anything to do with that company in a long time. No, I don't really know anything about it. Lying through his fucking teeth. And then... It, we don't know what happened with Revik, essentially. Like, we know that he had, like, a rough upbringing and at one point in time was in a mental institution. But we don't know, like, what his life was like before then, necessarily. But at some point in time, because Vale remembers nothing about growing up, he definitely, like, keeps Vale in a lie and purposely, like, keeps him homeless. Well, yeah, he was tracking, he was tracking him or had people following him. Yeah, exactly. They were watching him, but, like... 
that's fucked. Yeah. Right? That you're like still going to keep tabs on your son, but like purposely like make sure that he doesn't like get any further. And Dr. Ruth had footage of Revic being interviewed like when he was in treatment. Yeah. So either he was under Dr. Ruth's own care or Dr. Ruth was at least aware of him receiving care instead of like did nothing. being a father. He used it as like a learning process and like here's this footage I can use to show Vale to get him on my side. Yeah. Fuck you, bro. <laughs> like, he is he is the definition of like scientist good guy who's actually a bad guy like he's the science is all about coulda not shoulda yeah this whole thing like honestly does remind me of professor x and his relationship with his son legion oh totally because revik is like legion in this in many ways anyway he reveals all this information to Vale, and this is where he also reveals kind of his quote-unquote evil plot he is doing a mass distribution of the ephemeral in hopes to give to all these pregnant women to basically raise a new generation of scanners for quote like dot 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 world domination i guess yeah he wants to be in control of this like next wave that he can kind of mold and shape like okay so he's the magneto in this equation (laughs) yeah he's just kind of hoping to like take over this next batch and so like scanners can take over the world we're the next step in human evolution blah 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 he's a little bit too like apocalypse like magneto wouldn't be this evil about it or even like mr sinister he is he's kind of all of those people clump together but true but yeah so Revik then he has his like famous like join me Vale together we yeah. can rule the world as brothers and Vale of course declines this leads to alright if we don't want to do it the easy way we're gonna do it the scanners way I'm gonna suck you dry uh, yeah <laughs> This scene was honestly almost as memorable, if not more so, than the head explosion scene. It's just that the head explosion scene's easy to, like, gif and all that. Yeah. This one, though, this ending scene is fantastic. Um, This is honestly the most disturbing scene in the movie, maybe arguably next to the, the head explosion scene, because they start having a telepathic battle. You hear the visual cues like you've been hearing anytime scanners do it to each other and all that, but you start visually seeing, like, what's happening to their bodies as they're fighting each other mentally before this you had just seen them get nosebleeds yeah and that's that's kind of it but this is the most (gasps) kind of intense like you're starting to see a physical reaction to an extreme degree and it's it's kind of a slow process but slowly like their bodies start deteriorating like revik straight up looks like a demon at one point like his (laughs) eyes are totally rolled back and like there's no pupils like it's just white well so it it starts with veins and like all the veins and arteries in their bodies suddenly like burst to the surface and are just engorged veil has these veins running all down his arms revik has like a giant plume of veins in the side of his head all flare up and this effect is actually really cool they took very thin sheets of some kind of makeup plastic poly whatever and they made these channels in it and that way when they put that on the sides of their face or on their arms they could then like just inject fake blood directly into it to fill all those little channels to make those arteries pop and with enough pressure eventually they start to burst which is what we see in the movie those little arteries and veins just start squirting blood everywhere so they have like blood running down their faces and arms and stuff yeah it's because it's not just their faces all over their body like it's a total body reaction. These pores are opening up and all their bodily fluids are like pouring out of them. Vale literally like has a hole 
melt through his chest that you just see like foaming and bubbling it's like the alien blood like xenomorph blood where it just like oozes through it's just like burning a hole through his clothes even yeah like it this is definitely body horror to the max yeah because you're just the whole scene is just watching these two guys have these physical reactions and initially you know they're they're starting off and they're kind of doing their like staring at each other hard kind of thing and you definitely get the sense that Revik is the more powerful of the two, and he starts to overtake Vale, who starts kind of cowering, and you could tell, like, the panic on his face because he realizes he's outmatched. But then little by little, he starts to kind of zen out and calm to the point where, like, you literally see him, like, in kind of a almost Buddhist, Christ-like way, just, like, you know, holding his hands out, palms up. As his body's just deteriorating. Yeah, and his hands catch on fire. So he has fire in both of his palms as he's, like, finally zinned out and he's staring at Revik, who's now, like, starting to freak out more. Yeah, Revik, through this whole scene, is, like, feral and animalistic. Power. He is total, just, like, power unleashed, whereas... Vale, like you were saying, is more like calm-minded, yeah. tranquil. And finally, as Vale hits his zen point, his eyeballs like literally explode out of his head. And then we cut to Revik, who all of a sudden, like, and there's a great like camera just like rah, zoom up to him as he like leans back up. And we see now that his eyes are completely white. And he's just like screaming and roaring and just like all the veins popping in his face. That was the creepiest visual of this entire movie to me was that part. That's the poster for this movie too, which that poster is fucking awesome. But at that point, Cameron's body is completely engulfed in flames. And so now he's just like this roaring pyre on the floor and Revik is just like screaming with his eyes white and it just cuts to black yeah and again that scene where it shows his face eyes white screaming that is like the most haunting image of this movie for me um so yeah cuts to black and so then kim enters the room and she sees Vale's body on the floor like charred body like there's really nothing left of him but ash yeah he's he's beef jerky he's done yeah but then she hears Vale's voice like off camera and it looks like it's coming from the corner of the room and in the corner of the room is revik and so the last shot of the movie is it's like Revik's body is turned away and when he turns around the scar on his head is gone and his eyes are have been replaced with Vale's eyes and in Vale's voice he announces we've won and then that's how it ends you can infer that Vale has now taken over Revik's body um whether he kicked Revik out of his own body and like put him in his, his body that was like blown up or if he just straight up just took over his personality he's won he's won the the, the fight that's how it ends done cut the credits and i will say like this is one of those movies that i so wish and and the caveat is this i so wish that there were sequels to this movie okay there are sequels to this movie they're not good i really wish that there were good sequels to this movie like the matrix (laughs) yes like kind of to explore like where this goes from here because at this point like okay what happens to the scanners what happens to consec and biocarbon amalgam like do they continue to distribute ephemeral do they recall the ephemeral what do we do with all these other scanners is there anything left of revix underground what happens to all the back story of like them being brothers and dr ruth and like all this stuff that just like goes completely unanswered it's not necessary to telling this story but i so wish that there were like sequels that dug into it more i watched scanners 2 and scanners 3 
didn't even finish Scanners 3. I couldn't make it through it. Scanners 2 was not good. It's a decade later, not a decade later, like in the store, like it, it was made a decade later. It was made in like 91, 93, somewhere in there, early 90s. It picks up with a guy who like suddenly comes into his scanning ability and you find out that like him and this other woman are like the two kids of Vale and Oberst. It doesn't really address the whole, like, psychic swap at the end of the first movie, but it's just more of the, like, here's an evil corporation that's getting scanners for da-da-da world domination, and they're planning on having a scanner infiltrate the city government to do all this dumb shit. The sequels are not good. They are 100% not good. Cronenberg has nothing to do with them. They were all just kind of done by the studio years later to cash in on the franchise and try to make it into a franchise. They didn't even have any actors return, right? No. Like, not even the same, no act, same actors, different directors, different writers. Yeah, totally separated. Yeah, absolutely nothing to do with the first one. So I so wish that there was like more going on with this movie and I know that they've tried to like reboot it and remake it a few times um like 2006 2007 they were talking about doing a remake with Darren Lynn Bowsman the guy who did Saw 2 3 4 5 that whole chunk and I think it's just been in development hell since then same with the TV show. There was a TV show as well that's been in the works. Ah, I did not know that. Yeah, since like 2011, it's been in development now. Huh. I feel like there's so much you could really explore within this world that's just kind of untapped. And I think in the right hands, you could have somebody really interesting pick it up. I would really love to have a sequel to it now that maybe negates 2 and 3. Just kind of pull a Blade Runner or a Mad Max and just do like a 30 years later kind of sequel and just have somebody kind of pick up the story from there because at this point there's been enough time pass where you could potentially have the whole like well all the women who were pregnant at the time with that initial batch of Revix ephemeral their kids would all be grown now so like you know what can we do with like the new generation of scanners and Michael Ironside is still around you could totally have him come back as Vale Revic you could do a lot with it I think 30 years later and have it pick up the story and continue in an interesting way hell you could get Cronenberg to write and direct it as well yeah I don't know he might I don't know that he would be interested to come back to this because he's never he seems to be the kind of director that kind of goes from one thing finishes it all right I'm done and you know never looks back yeah I don't I don't think he's ever done like a franchise has he like in any way no and beyond you know obviously like the fly is a remake but I think the I think his version honestly is leaps and bounds better and more interesting and more important than the original movie. And he's done adaptations. He's done a lot of adaptations. I mean everything from Crash to The Dead Zone. But I don't know. I would I would like to see somebody pick this up. And yeah, Cronenberg's never been involved with anything that's really franchisey. He even notoriously turned down directing Return of the Jedi because he just didn't want to hop into something like that. God, what I would do to see Cronenberg's Return of the Jedi. <laughs> yeah, well there's there's definitely the like David Lynch turned down directing Return of the Jedi and David Cronenberg did and everybody's like, "Oh god, what would that have looked like?" But apparently all there is to the story is he got a phone call and someone was like, "Hey, are you interested in directing Return of the Jedi?" And he's like, "Hey, no." And that was it. You know, there wasn't like anything more to that. It's not like he was ever like developing the story i think the one thing that i would like to see is he initially was going to be directing total recall and he did do some design work on it and did some pre-production before he stepped away and it shifted over to verhoven so i think that could have been 
interesting as far as like a what if is concerned, but I don't think it ever got far enough to like have much tangible come from it. I could see how Cronenberg could be in a uh, make a movie like Total Recall work because there is a little bit of Cronenberg esque things in that movie. Yeah. One thing, so going back to Scanners to wrap it all up, the things that I liked about this is that this could have easily gone the direction of an 80s sci-fi action movie and I'm glad it more went closer to a horror movie yeah. instead of showing these powers as being like awesome fighting sort of powers like kind of almost like proto superhero movie they're horrifying they're horrifying yeah. like the, the powers are not visually they're not good to look at because the people who even the people who are wielding the powers look physically uncomfortable and nosebleeds and everything else but then also auditorial it's just disturbing it sounds disturbing and I mean that last shot of Rev face with the eyes white and him screaming is a perfect representation of the horror of scanning basically yeah and i really do appreciate that and again going back to what i mentioned at the beginning of the whole conversation where i think this movie qualifies as a horror movie is it specifically addresses and deals with our fears of the other you know just people who are different from us having to live with you know people who are different not knowing how they'll react to us or what their intentions are and then the flip side of it where you are the other and you're either on the run or you're being persecuted or just how you're being used or manipulated there's always those fears of what's going on around me how are these outside groups using me potentially and then obviously the whole like body horror aspect of it just what happens when you give in to the thing that makes you different again whether it's like a disability or a mental illness or just anything like that like when you aren't in control of it the fear that like it's going to consume you and it's going to take you over and turn you into this feral monstrous kind of thing you know I I think it's very applicable to the horror side of it because this movie more than anything else in this kind of subgenre addresses that side of it this is x-men if we were more concerned about their actual internal struggles as human beings the movie doesn't shy away from the fact that scanners are dangerous either yeah they don't try and make them out to be even really be that sympathetic they make them out to be dangerous with stuff like x-men you're always they're sympathetic humans are typically the ones that are kind of acting like the monsters which is also fascinating because in that regard it's just like well the people who are classifying others with powers as monsters are the monsters themselves but it was kind of refreshing to see like a movie that does dip into those fears of the other where the other actually is a little disturbing yeah the end of this movie like we had mentioned earlier too is not necessarily hopeful it's a little dark actually because even just him like turning around with now in control of Ravik's body and saying we've won that line and the way he delivers it there's something extremely creepy about it um again it goes back to lax performance and whether it was choices he made as a per- as an actor or if they were on purpose with his character that like he's not somebody i would trust basically yeah kim i would trust him i would not again like he's kind of just being dumped right into this world and being given very quick and immediate control of his power and you see like how much more powerful he is than the rest of them which is kind of scary and just the way that he kind of takes to it so gleefully 
and with so little like regard for the bigger picture that's what's disturbing because you know like he's clearly being used the entire time but he just so willingly goes along with it because of the fact that he's like so happy to like have some control and have some ability to like actually mesh with regular humankind you know that he's willing to do whatever they tell him to do in order to like maintain that control and so even if it means go be a corporate spy potentially kill people he's just like sure yeah i'll do it let's do this unquestioningly the loyalty to Consec is what's disturbing because at the end of the day they are just the other evil corporation in that regard i do sympathize and empathize with him a little bit but then also too he just kind of also kind of becomes a little power hungry in it yeah it's a more refined way than revic again revic is more just raw animalistic he's more refined but they're they're both power hungry in their own different ways Vale has a naivete to his character that Revik does not. Revik knows exactly what's going on and he's doing exactly what he wants to do unapologetically. Yeah, and again, that line that ends with Weave 1 is haunting because yeah. that's not something like you would think Vale would say once they stopped Revik. He almost makes it sound like parts of Revik's personality has bled together into his. Is the Weave 1 is he just referring to just him and Kim or is Weave 1 as in as scanners as a the new step in evolution have we won? That's what I took from that that ending. Yeah. That's just me. Yeah. Do you have any other final thoughts on scanners? No. Um, I think that's, I think we covered it pretty much top to bottom for the most part. I'm sure there's probably some more cerebral takes on this movie all said and done, but I like it. I enjoy it. This is one of my favorite Cronenberg movies which I like the majority of his work. So, you know, we will definitely get into some of his more complicated and interesting stuff later, but I think this is kind of a good place to dip our toes in for now. If you consider yourself a movie fan, especially with sci-fi or horror or both, Scanners is one you want to at least watch once. Yep. I would say if you haven't seen it already, go see it. Yeah, definitely. Like Derek mentioned earlier, hopefully we are going to be a little more regular. I know for me, work has kind of calmed down a little bit more. So hopefully we're going to be able to get stuff put out, you know, a little bit more regularly and not have breaks like we just went through. But at the end of the day, life is life. So yeah, check us out on our social media pages on Facebook and Twitter. We are Watch If You Dare on Facebook and same thing with Twitter. Download future episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, etc. Definitely be sure to subscribe, rate, and review, which I have to say, I have been reached out to by several listeners already, and it is so, so awesome hearing feedback from you guys. We love hearing from everybody. We love the discussions that we've had. Um, So definitely recommend us to friends and family that would be interested. We greatly appreciate it. Yeah, and all all our uh, relevant links are also on our Podbean page, which is basically our webpage in general. So again, you can find all those relevant links there too. I'd like to give a shout out to some of the people on Twitter that have reached out, just other amateur podcasts and um, fans of podcasts who have given their support to us just out of nowhere and that's amazing <laughs> frankly yeah it's it's very humbling to hear that and thanks again to all the people we do know and the people we don't know who have supported us and yes please rate and review us especially on itunes apple Podcasts. that helps so much shout out to your little brother yes for our opening and closing themes party gator party gator band camp and all that jazz yep which we are recording this on his birthday so happy i guess late birthday 
<laughs> yeah, like happy, like my brother. By the time this comes out, <laughs> yeah, one or two months later, happy birthday. <laughs> oh yeah! All right, that's it. You want to take us out? We're gonna do like a scanner battle right here. Just splash! Shit, my cat just caught on fire. <laughs> yep. Well, stay spoopy, and we will see y'all later.